blessings to you on this resurrection day. I realized before I left the building last Sunday that uh, I said something I needed to correct. I'm sure some of you caught it as soon as it left my mouth. When I quoted from Psalm 2, I said it was one of the great messianic psalms of David. I was half right. It is a psalm of Messiah written hundreds of years before Christ's first coming, but it's not one that's explicitly attributed to David. It's important to me to be accurate about all that comes out of my mouth about the Word of God to the extent that that that's possible, so I wanted to correct that. All right, the chapter that we're going to finish out this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, is absolutely among the most foundational passages in the entire Bible for us as believers. Last Sunday in verses 1 through 11, we saw Paul's distillation of the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that we must believe in order to stand righteous in the eyes of a holy God, the message by which we as believers continue to stand day by day. In the remainder of 1 Corinthians 15 that we're going to look at this morning, Paul turns his focus unwaveringly to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to the impact of his resurrection on us who have believed in him. In verse 12, Paul starts by saying that the Corinthian believers had encountered some who were contradicting his teaching and that of the other apostles concerning the resurrection of Christ, and who in fact were saying there is no resurrection of the dead for Christ or for anyone else. This was the position of the Jewish sect known as the Sadducees, one of the two ruling classes of Jewish leaders in Israel and who had great power in Jerusalem at that time. And there were no doubt others who took the same position, that there is no resurrection from the dead. As you know today, there are still many who take an anti-supernatural position and they say there's no such thing as a resurrection. Paul addresses head-on and in no uncertain terms in this passage the assertion that there's no resurrection from the dead. In verses 13 to 19, he explains what's at stake in the resurrection. He says twice, once in verse 13 and once in verse 16, that if there is no resurrection at all, then not even Christ has been raised. Now that may seem like a very obvious statement. If no one is raised, then Christ is not raised. But it's critically important to Paul's argument here because he's about to explain that the whole issue of resurrection of life after death, starts and ends with the person of Jesus Christ. It doesn't start with what's true of mankind generally and then somehow extrapolate to Christ. It starts with Christ himself. He then introduces the question, what is true if Christ has not been raised? And he he, he begins to lay out a series of statements, of ramifications that apply to to mankind, to us, if Christ is not raised. And the things that he raises are as weighty as it gets. In verses 14 to 19, starting in verse 14, he proceeds to address what's at stake. And he says, if Messiah, if Christ was not resurrected after his death, then 
our preaching is vain. The word vain means empty, pointless, useless. He's saying that everything that he and the other apostles have declared about Jesus Christ would be rendered empty and useless if it is not for the the resurrection of Christ. Now, this is a very forceful and very clarifying statement. There are many people in the world, even today, who believe that there is some moral or practical value to the teachings in the New Testament, even though they do not believe that Jesus is Christ, that he is God in the flesh, and they do not believe that he was raised from the dead. Paul says here that if the claim that Christ is raised is false, then all that the apostles have declared about him, including Christ's own teachings, are vain and useless. He stakes everything on one historical event. If Jesus did not literally die, if he was not bodily resurrected, then he was not the promised Messiah. Because as we saw last week, the prophecies in the Bible, some made as far as a thousand years before Christ came, demand that Messiah die in our place and be raised from the dead. And during his own ministry while he was here, Jesus explicitly claimed that he would die and would be raised on the third day from the dead. So if he was not resurrected, he is not a good teacher or a great prophet. He is a fraud. He is a liar. If this is if the resurrection is not true, he's a liar who claimed to be what he is not, and the Pharisees and Sadducees who demanded his crucifixion were correct to do so. The second thing Paul says is that if Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain. It's pointless to make Jesus Christ the object of your faith if he died and is still dead. Last week we saw in Romans 1 verse 4, Paul declared, Paul said that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the proof that he is who he claimed to be. In John 8, 58, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, Before Abraham was, I am. And in, in using that terminology, Jesus laid claim to be the same one who appeared to Moses in the form of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 on Mount Sinai. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, in both of those last two passages, you remember what the Jews did after he spoke those words? They started gathering up stones to stone him to death. Precisely because they understood him to be claiming that he was God, and they believed that he was not. That would be blasphemy of the highest order, a stonable offense. Either Jesus was raised from the dead, or he was deluded or downright evil. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, either he is the risen Lord to be believed on and worshipped, or he was a liar or a lunatic unworthy of further attention. Paul says next in verse 15, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are false witnesses concerning God. 
The apostles, including Paul, had been declaring to all who would listen and to many who didn't want to listen that they had seen the resurrected Christ. If he was not in fact raised, then they were perpetrating a grievous lie, a hoax. And they were guilty of bearing false witness against God himself. In verse 17, Paul says, If Christ was not raised, your faith is worthless. He repeats that. And then he says, You are still in your sins. As we saw last week, Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, make it clear that the resurrection proved the Father's satisfaction with Christ's payment for our sins. It proved that God's wrath against our sin had been taken away, that the guilt offering of Messiah was accepted by God the Father, and that it it accomplished what he intended it to accomplish. As was pointed out this morning, the last word that Jesus spoke on the cross was a Greek word to telestai. It means it is finished. The resurrection of Christ was God's stamp of approval on that declaration by Jesus. If Jesus was not resurrected, then it is not finished. Our debt to God has not been paid. The eternal penalty for our sins is still on our own shoulders, and we are all lost and dead forever. That's what Paul says is at stake. This one has a big impact on a lot of funerals. Paul says, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then those who have fallen asleep aren't waking up. They have perished. They're gone. And there is no hope in death. There is no consolation in death. In verse 18, he says, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then we who have placed our hope only in Christ in this life are most to be pitied. We've all heard people say that uh, if you live this life as a Christian and you turn out to be wrong, you're still better off than if you hadn't. Uh, It's sort of like at least we will have been happy in our delusion and we will probably have treated people better than if we believed nothing. But Paul shoots that reasoning down forcefully, and he calls it the height of foolishness. He says if we placed our hope only in Christ, and he turns out to be a fraud because he was not raised from the dead, we are of all men most pathetic. We will have squandered our lives on a lie while others around us were living it up and getting all the gratification they could out of this fleeting life. We will have thrown it away by depriving ourselves of such things for no good reason at all. Now, beloved, it's critically important to recognize that Paul doesn't in any way see the Christian life as a convenience or as an insurance policy that has no bearing on our lives until we die. Jesus didn't die to make us happy. He died to make us holy, now and in eternity. So Paul's words assume that the believer, the one whose hope has been placed in Jesus, will suffer much in this life for doing so, just as Paul did. 
That's the normal Christian life. Paul is forceful with all of his words in verses 12 through 19. He puts it all out on the table. He says, a Savior who died and is still dead is of no use, no consequence, and any who worship and follow him are pathetic, most to be pitied. Because a dead Savior is no Savior at all. And then the very next verse puts to rest all of the fears that Paul has just raised. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. We serve a risen Savior. And Paul had the credentials to make this declaration uh, with credibility and authority, right? As he himself pointed out in verse 9 of this chapter, when he testified to his own personal encounter with the resurrected Christ, Paul had, before that encounter been a zealous persecutor of Christians. He was traveling one day from Jerusalem to Damascus to root out some more Christians to arrest and drag back to Jerusalem for trial by the Jewish authorities. And in Acts 9, it says, while he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Jesus appeared to him in a brilliant light. Jesus blinded him putting something like scales over his eyes. And then he sent Saul to a believer in Damascus named Ananias. While at the home of Ananias, Saul regained his sight. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was baptized on the spot. And from that day forward, Paul, whose name was also Saul, became the ambassador of God to the Gentiles. The one who had persecuted the followers of Christ with all his heart, with all his energy, was now himself a follower of Jesus Christ. And he became arguably the most effective of all the apostles in the hands of God. And what did Paul get from this world, this side of heaven, for laying his life down for the gospel of Jesus? Well, he was repeatedly arrested, beaten, tortured, shipwrecked, and finally had his head removed, never wavering in his proclamation that he had seen the resurrected Christ. Paul knew whereof he spoke when he said, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He had personally met the resurrected Christ, and that encounter had transformed him completely and forever. Added to Paul's own first-hand witness of the resurrection of Christ was the testimony of the disciples and of hundreds of others. He says in one, at one point that more than 500 at one time saw the resurrected Christ. And he's careful to point out back in verses 5 through 9, 5 through 8, that most of those who had seen Christ were still around at the time he wrote this epistle, so they could have denied what he was saying. But rather than deny, many of those about whom he is speaking went to their deaths proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, including both of the people that he, that he specifies by name, Peter and James, and of course Paul himself. 
Now, guys, it's one thing to die for something you hope is true. It's quite another for, to die for something you know is false. Our faith rests not on an esoteric set of beliefs, but on a historical event. An event that those who witnessed were willing to die to proclaim. After declaring the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul then starts to talk about the events that will follow his resurrection. In verse 20, he says that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, throughout the New Testament, beginning with the, the teaching of Jesus himself, the term asleep is used of believers in Jesus Christ who have died. And by the way, it's used only of believers, not of unbelievers. The very use of that word to describe departed believers points to the promise of the resurrection. One who is asleep is expected to awaken. This verse also says that Jesus is the first fruits, and this is a great concept. (laughs) He's the first fruits of those who possess God's promise of resurrection. First fruits was a very well-known concept to the Jews. The first fruits offering was brought to God uh, as the very first part of each harvest, and there were several harvests during each year. When the first fruits were being gathered, there were already many more crops in the field to be gathered, still waiting. But until the first portion of each harvest had been gathered and set aside for God, You were not allowed to gather any more of it or to eat any of it. You see, the first fruits of the harvest were simply the first portion of all the rest, the portion reserved for God. In the same way, Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. His resurrection is the promise that there is more harvest out there to be gathered, and that's us. His his resurrection is the promise of, of our resurrection. And that was pointed out this morning, too. By the way, Brother Don, don't worry about impinging on anything I'm going to say. (laughs) It's not my thunder, it's his. And this is stuff that bears repeating as often as we can say it. I want to share something exceedingly cool (laughs) that I consider exceedingly cool regarding the connection between the first fruits offering and the resurrection. If you look in Leviticus 23, and we're not going to take time to dig into that passage, but Leviticus 23, 9 through 14 says that the first fruits offering is offered on the day after the Sabbath. And the very first harvest of the year, the barley harvest in Israel, occurred in the same month as Passover. Many believe that the first first fruits offering of the agricultural cycle occurred the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. What day would that be? Resurrection day, today. So while the high priest was waving the sheaf of first fruits, the women were at the tomb finding it empty because the first fruits of the resurrection was no longer in the tomb. By the way, we learn from other passages such as John 5 and Revelation 20 that all men will be resurrected, whether they have believed in Jesus Christ or not. 
This passage, 1 Corinthians 15, is talking about the resurrection unto eternal life that is assured to us who have trusted in Jesus Christ. But those who have not believed will also be resurrected. They'll be resurrected to uh, a different end point. (laughs) They'll be resurrected to the great white throne of God to stand before him and to be judged for their deeds. And Revelation 20 tells us that nobody will pass that test. Their sin will still be on their own shoulders because they have not believed in the one and only Savior, the one perfect sacrifice. And it says they'll be cast into the lake of fire forever because their names will not be found written in the Lamb's book of life. That's not popular these days to talk about that reality, but it is most certainly biblical. Paul continues with his discussion about what comes after the resurrection in verses 21 to 23. He says, After that time, uh, oh, I'm sorry, we did latter, the latter fruits, that's us. He says in verse 24 to 28 that after the resurrection, Jesus will, that actually Jesus is going to reign until we are resurrected. It says that Jesus is going to reign over all things and that he's going to put to an end all rule and all authority and all power. It says he's going to hand the kingdom up to the Father. And it says in verses 25 and 26, he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Verses 24 and 28 speak of the time after our resurrection, after the last enemy has been abolished, when the Son will deliver up to God, the Father, the kingdom of this earth. And then verse 28 says that he'll be subjected, the Son will be subjected to the one who for a time subjected all things to him. Now that seems kind of hard to put your hands around, but here's what I take it to mean. God the Father has put all rule and authority and power in all of creation in subjection to God the Son for a time. But once God's plan of redemption has been fully accomplished, fully realized, this functional distinction, this division of tasks, if you will, within the Godhead will cease. And the Son will deliver up the kingdom to the God and Father in order that, in verse 28, God may be all in all. Now, when he says that God may be all in all, I take that as the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit may be all in all. This is not to say that Jesus' reign over all of creation will cease, because Isaiah 9, 7, and many other passages tell us that the reign of Messiah is forever. But at the culmination of God's plan of redemption, Jesus will reign together with the Father. I believe this is what the prophet Zechariah refers to in Zechariah 14.9 when he says, And Yahweh will be king over the earth. In that day, the Lord, Yahweh, will be the only one, and his name, the only one. Similarly, in Revelation 11.15, it says, At the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the angels loudly declared, "The The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. 
Now, don't worry about it. If that seems hard to to grasp, it's hard to grasp for me, too. (laughs) But it's in the text, and I wanted to address it. In verses 29 to 34, Paul takes this amazing promise that we will be raised because Jesus Christ was raised, and he starts to talk about the ramifications of that promise for our lives. Now, the first verse in that section is verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Since Steve Eichenbaum read that this morning, I'm going to let him come up and explain it. (laughs) Now, verse 29 gives gives, uh, some people a lot of heartburn. And there have been numerous attempts to explain this specific practice that Paul references here. But the bottom line is there's no other reference to it anywhere in the Bible. So I'm not going to distract our focus on that which is clear and vitally important by trying to pin down something that no one else has been able to pin down. Paul is not commanding or even explicitly endorsing the practice he describes here. His point is that those who observe this practice do so on the belief that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and that the dead will be raised. In verse 30, he starts with a question. He says, why are we also in danger every hour? If it were not for the certainty of the resurrection, then the persecutions, the sufferings, and the frequent threats of death that Paul and others had faced for the sake of the gospel would be a terrible waste of a life. He points out in verse 32 that if if he has to hang his hat on human motives on self-interest, then fighting wild beasts in the street of Ephesus, streets of Ephesus is a pretty stupid thing to get yourself into. If it's self-interest that drives our behavior because this life is all that we've got, then wouldn't it make a lot more sense to just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die? And he quotes a little phrase that's part of the Epicurean philosophy of the Greco-Roman Empire. Oh, that was shared by many at that time. But Paul has already forcefully declared that our resurrection is a certainty because of Christ's resurrection. And beloved, we're told throughout the New Testament that persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ are to be expected for us who belong to him. First Peter 4 says, don't think it's strange when you're persecuted. It says, that's called sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And it's part of who we are as believers. John 15, Jesus assured us that the world will hate us because it hated him. But because of the hope that's set before us of the resurrection, we don't run from the painful tribulation that that God hands to us in this life. And, of course, the Bible goes much further than just saying we don't run from it. God's Word tells us that the blessings we will enjoy in Christ to a limited degree here and to an infinite degree when we stand in His presence are so amazing, so transcendent, that we have cause to embrace the tribulation that we experience in this life, not merely to tolerate or to endure it. 
Romans 8.18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us in Christ. And the certainty of Christ's resurrection and of ours not only impacts how we respond to trouble in this life, it impacts the choices that we make. Paul singles out here our choice of friends. He raises a big red flag at the beginning of verse 33. He says, do not be deceived. Now that's a very emphatic warning. In effect, he's saying, if you think that you can ignore this principle and everything will be fine, you're wrong. Seriously wrong. Bad company corrupts good morals. The Corinthian church was a mess on this point. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul had to single out a guy who was engaged in a very heinous sexual sin that the believers in Corinth were completely ignoring. In 5.5, he says, I have delivered such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, God is jealous for the purity of his people and his body, his church. And we must all jealously protect that same purity. I want to be clear on this point. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to associate with and to show the love of Christ to the lowliest and most despised of people, including those whose sins are very evident and very damaging. Our efforts to to correct sin in others uh, must never come from a spirit of self-righteousness, but always from a spirit of humility, recognizing that you and I are as worthy of condemnation as the person that we seek to correct. But Jesus is our example in all things, right? And it's crystal clear that his association with sinners was not in any way to endorse or to participate in their sin or even to turn a blind eye to their sin. In John 8, he didn't say to the harlot, since all these religious guys who are about to stone you are sinners too and shameful hypocrites, then you should feel free to just go on doing what you were doing. No need to worry about all that morality stuff. That's too judgmental. No, he said, go your way and from now on, sin no more. That's where Paul goes in the next verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 34. He says, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. And then at the end of verse 34, he says, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He shames the Corinthian believers because it didn't seem to even concern them that some among them whom they apparently embraced as brothers and sisters in Christ, had no knowledge of God. But the Corinthian church was so enamored with worldliness that they didn't even recognize perpetrators of falsehood who had come in among them. Does your behavior make those who abide in sin uncomfortable? Or comfortable. Don't trivialize what Jesus Christ has done for you. 
Don't take lightly the certainty that he's given you of your eternal destiny. Accept without resentment the alienation that you will suffer from this world. Because that's what's guaranteed to you as a partaker in the sufferings of Christ. Flee from sin. Be jealous for your own purity and for the purity of Christ's church. The purity of your fellow heirs of grace. Live in light of the resurrection. In verse 35, Paul transitions away from exhortation and back to talking about the resurrection itself. And he starts with a question in verse 35. He says, someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? (laughs) And his response to that question at the beginning of the next verse is, he says, you fool. So he's not taking this as a legit question. He's saying this hypothetical questioner is really making a statement more than asking a question. It's something kind of to the effect, how could it be possible for the dead to be raised? You expect expect me to believe that a decaying body can be put back together and raised from the dead? Well, after calling that question foolish, Paul proceeds to point out in verses 36 to 39 that even with things that are merely earthly, that which is reaped is vastly different from that which is sown. The two are radically different. He contrasts how... A plant, a wheat plant, starts out as a little grain off of a head of wheat, and then it turns into a mature plant. A a tiny little mustard seed turns into a tree. He says that it is God who determines the shape and the form that a thing takes when he's finished with it. And he says that God has given to each part of his creation, a manifestation and appearance of its own. He says he gives one kind of, he gives different kinds of of physical appearances to different kinds of plants. He gives one kind of body to men, another to beasts, another to birds, and another to fish. But God determines what each thing becomes. And that which it becomes is not the same as how it started. Now, he's just priming the pump here to get to verses 42 and following when he'll talk about the resurrection body that we receive from God. In verses 40 to 41, and I don't know why it is at this point that we start losing the flipper. All right, I'm going to let Steve do my flipping up there. He says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Now, he's not yet talking about heavenly in the sense of spiritual. He's talking about the things in the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he says, earthly things have a different glory or majesty than the heavenly things. And even the heavenly things, the luminaries, have different, different glories of their own. Differences in intensity, in majesty. In verse 42, he gets to the heart of the matter. He focuses in on what happens to us at our resurrection. And he lays out four different changes that occur. He says, what is sown perishable is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. 
And what is sown natural is raised spiritual. Then in verses 45 to 49, he explains that our, at our resurrection, we will be transformed from the image or nature of Adam to the image of Christ. And he reveals to us what that transformation will be like by contrasting those two men, Adam and Christ. He says, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. And he's saying that the, that the first Adam is a lot different than the second Adam. When he says that the first Adam became a living soul, he's actually quoting very precisely the wording of the Septuagint from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, which says, The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The first man, Adam, received life from God, a life which, after the fall, became fleeting and temporary. You might see it as a life on loan. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, is a life-giving spirit. Through his death and resurrection, he not only lives, but he is the source of life to us. He imparts to us an overflowing well of life that never ends. In John chapter 4, when Jesus met with the woman at the well, He talked about living water. And he said, Everyone who drinks of the water from this well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. It's like a well that's tapped into an underground spring and it just keeps overflowing. We who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ possess that life right now. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has already passed out of death into life. But believers, when we are raised from the dead, that same boundless life will energize even our resurrected bodies. The natural will put on the spiritual That which was created of the dust of the earth will put on the heavenly. And that which was sown perishable will be raised imperishable. In verses 50 to 57, Paul continues the contrast between our earthly condition and that which we will lay hold of at the resurrection. And his focus shifts from the miraculous transformation to the event itself and to the incomparable victory that we will enjoy once our resurrection has taken place. Now I'm going to read verses 50 to 57 without comment because I don't have anything to add to these incomparable words. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God indeed. We have this hope, not as a wish, but as a certainty. And this hope is the anchor of our souls. Because He was raised... We who believe in him will also be raised. Paul closes this amazing chapter with a simple exhortation and encouragement that is made mighty by all that he has just said about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection guaranteed by his. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, your toil, is not in vain in the Lord. Beloved brethren, he saved you to use you for his glory. Do not take that lightly. His promise to you that you'll one day be raised imperishable isn't something that's supposed to allow you to coast through this life living for your own agenda. It's supposed to move you to serve Him with all your heart and with all your strength. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Be abounding always in the work of the Lord. That's the one thing you will do with your life that will remain. There was a Chinese mission, a missionary to China, American missionary to China named C.T. Studd, who wrote a great poem, Only One Life. And the refrain of that poem is, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May our lives count for the one who gave us that which is life indeed, who gave us his life. Now, if you came here today without knowing how you will spend eternity, without knowing whether you'll face judgment and condemnation or unimaginable endless blessing, or even if you came here not knowing if there's a God at all. Not, not certain whether there's even such a thing as heaven or hell. Then here's what God is saying to you in this marvelous chapter. Jesus Christ is the real deal. His death and resurrection were witnessed by hundreds of people. Many of whom laid down their lives to proclaim him as Savior. He fulfilled hundreds of prophecies written hundreds of years before his coming. And he did everything just as those prophecies said that he would. He is the Savior. He is the great I Am. He is the one to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. He's the only one in whom we have victory over sin and over death itself. 
Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Take Him at His word. Believe in Him today. And be saved forever. Be saved to walk in newness of life now and to be raised immortal, imperishable at the last trumpet. Loving Father, we thank you for this astounding passage, this promise which is the very bedrock of our motivation to live in a manner that's pleasing and honoring to you. Because we know, Lord, according to your promise, our labor is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not in vain. Those who have died before us as believers did not perish, Lord, but they have come into your presence and one day they too at the last trumpet will receive bodies that are perfected, that are turned from mortal to immortal, as will we who have believed in Jesus the Christ as the one true sacrifice for our sins. We give him the glory on this resurrection day, Father. We exalt his name and we ask you, we ask you, Father, to use us to draw others to him. We ask this for his sake and for for his reputation and name. Amen.